read uh, several verses in uh, Titus first, so that we can begin. We'll be looking at Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And uh, for this reason, I left you in Crete, Paul, writing to Titus, uh, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. The, the Lord will bless the reading of his word. And uh, as, we, as we have already looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and now look at this, we see uh, several things that are similar. Indeed, we see at least uh, five of these qualifications that are uh, identical. And, um, but as we look, just to, as an overview, taking a look at them, we notice that there are four areas uh, of these qualifications. And the four areas uh, are in moral character, which uh, refers to conduct and relationships, um, a knowledge base, which is the scriptures. And uh, that knowledge base, of course, indicates diligent study of the Word of God, uh, experience. Uh, nearly every uh, job offer uh, has qualifications with it that have something about experience. And notice that the experience here is in household, family, children. Family is the most frequent metaphor used in the New Testament for the church. And um, there's a reason for that, as we'll look at in a few minutes. And the other um, qualifications I have said, moral character, knowledge base, experience, and aptitude, and aptitude for teaching. And, uh, and teaching and also, it mentions here, defending or able to give arguments in support of your position and to refute those who would uh, contradict you. Um, notice that in these requirements, there is nothing said about educational attainments, ordination, uh, charismatic personality, social status, popularity, business success, and we've already talked about this in a sense, that the, we're not looking for success, worldly success to lead in the church, but we're looking for godly, godly men to lead us. Um, and interestingly, uh, there is a, um, there's a little tiny three letter word that occurs in twice in first timothy chapter three and once here and uh, that is a word that uh, means must or literally means it is necessary so the um the character qualifications here are a necessity um they're not suggestions, uh, but they are necessary. It is necessary that uh, the elder be qualified. Of course, as we look at this, we think, wow. Uh, I'll ask the first question that I have already. 
uh, written down in uh, in our discussion questions, and that is, does blameless, the first qualification blameless, does blameless mean sinless? If so, how could any man be an elder? How strictly should we um, apply these qualifications? Does anybody have a comment? Yeah, before we start the start off, I should just say, Steve and Tracy, like, please uh, jump in. We have some new people on, so. I'm sorry, all this is a discussion. In, all input is welcome, and please uh, just unmute yourself and say what you would like to say if you have anything to say. Sorry, go ahead, Ray. So then back to the question, uh, and uh, the question is blameless. Uh, uh, is is that does that mean sinless? Are we looking for men who are sinless? Um, no. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll comment no. on that. Is you unmute? A little more. A little more. Okay. So maybe that, discussion. Yeah. Tracy has something he's going to share. Okay. Well, uh, as I muse on this, uh, I'm minded that. There isn't any of us who hasn't sinned. All have sinned. And so we're all sinful in that regard. But in Christ, we're, we've been made blameless. So by faith, we are blameless. We've been justified by faith. So therefore, blameless. If I, in a, in a worldly court of law here, if I've uh, made some infraction of the law, I'm guilty of the law. I'm sinful. But if I go before the judge and he pardons me, then I now am not to be blamed. I'm blameless. So those are just some thoughts that I had about that. Okay. We're sinless, but we've been made blameless in God's sight. First John 1 8, if we say that if if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right. I, I think so, everybody kind of agrees that it's not no no sin. I mean, if we think we don't sin, we probably have too much pride, which we've discussed a lot in other ones. Um, yeah. Blameless to me, though, like uh, we're all going to sin and do something wrong, but we, it's taking care of the problem, right? Like we don't have outstanding issues that are uh, people can bring accusation against us, I think would be. Kind of and that is that is the precise meaning of the of the word there in in the original is that the a charge cannot be brought against someone or cannot be sustained against um, against an elder. So it kind of goes uh, like keeping short accounts, like so when you know you've done something wrong, or and just taking care of it and bringing it to the Lord, but also bringing it to the people that you've wronged. Yes. Now, some people see this qualification as an as an overriding uh, qualification for uh, that includes everything that follows. As this is sort of like a heading, and it's repeated again uh, in the next verse. Uh, so that uh, it's the only qualification here that is repeated twice within within these uh, requirements for. Uh, the elder, but and some would see it as sort of an overriding thing that men must be blameless or must have integrity, and uh, we could, and if we have a chance, we'll look in more detail uh, at that. Um, then the uh, next qualification after uh, blameless is the husband of one wife, and we have uh, already discussed as as. This is identical to what's in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. The husband of one wife is literally a one-woman man. Um, and we've had, uh, we've had discussion about it. Uh, Clay has uh, sent out uh, the positions of a number of expositors um, for us. And uh, we've had time to look at that. I'm wondering if uh, anybody has anything that they want to add to what Clay has here or 
may I just step back for one second? Yes. Um, back to the blameless thing. I'd like to, this is one I, I've got to tell you, I have, is there's been times this blameless has driven me out of my mind and it caused me to really take a severe look at it. I was raised in a, in a, in an atmosphere where it was literally taught at times that if a man fell, that was it. There was no way he could ever become an overseer in years to come, whether young or old. Um, that was because he could no longer be blameless. And I have had to overcome that kind of thinking personally. I do not agree that that is the case. And I think if we look at this word blameless, it is a, a present tense form. And it's how that person is now. What testimony does that brother have or that uh, worker have, um, deacon, whatever the case may be, uh, now? How, how does the assembly recognize that person now? Not in years gone by where mistakes have been made, but now. That's my personal opinion on it, and you can feel free to argue with me, which would be fine. <laughs> well, I think uh, that uh, th that's an important point and, a, and something that um, we needed to establish initially, that this does not mean that it, we're talking about a perfect man, but we will hopefully before we end this evening, get back to that and talk uh, and talk specifically about that, of what might uh, the qualities that a, that a man needs to have and at what point in his life uh, those were evident. Um, and thank you, uh, DJ. We we hope to get back to that. Um, so let's try to bring it back to uh, the one woman man. Uh, right. I think Jeff was, may have been saying something. Jeff, you're muted. Could I ask a question since I wasn't here before? I'm just kind of curious since you guys have all discussed this uh, uh, one wife issue. Did you come to a consensus? We did not. Oh, okay. Well, all right then. And uh, there, there, the, I think in review, there was a strong opinion that this was dealing with divorce. There was a strong opinion that this was not divorce, but was more purity of life. And so Clay did take time to look up a number of positions of different expositors and he got that information out to us we, we've had a chance to look at it and I didn't know whether anybody had anything to say I did have one um, I had some feedback from somebody who uh, was not is not able to be uh, here this evening with us and uh, uh, I think that his feedback is very helpful in that he said that there's one one line in um, in that material that Clay sent out to us, uh, what the Bible teaches by J. Allen, uh, in, in it, it says, the simple interpretation is to see this statement as laying emphasis on the absolute fidelity of the overseer to one woman against the pagan background of Ephesus locally with its uh, moral degradation uh, centered on the cult of Artemis with prostitution, uh, concubines, uh, fornication, adultery, uh, divorce prevalent. Uh, that is the situation that was looking at. And my question is, is it any different today? We don't worship Artemis, but certainly today we see the moral degradation and uh, a lack 
in so many people of personal morality and marital fidelity. But somehow this man uh, then gets back to, um, to divorce uh, at any time during his life, even if it's prior to becoming a Christian and say, saying that that would disqualify him. Um, the person that wanted this brought up uh, is saying that to single out divorce uh, is a logical fallacy called special pleading that uh, there is anything in our, uh, any particular sin that we can single out and say that it is a disqualification and not say that uh, uh, other sins in the past, in our past, uh, would also disqualify uh, is, is a logical fallacy. So, um, but I think that it starts off with a very good statement there about the simply looking at what the words say. A one woman man uh, is uh, absolute fidelity of the man to one woman. Can I comment there? Yes. Well, as far as the, the idea of singling out, in my mind, this is already singled out right here. This singles it out. Okay. What does it single out? Well, we're reading it right here. We're yep. reading it. Okay. Paul singles it out here. It is. And what, what does he single out, though, is my, is my question. The uh, being blameless, that is, the, the, excuse me, the husband of one wife. The, the, the husband of one wife is, uh, is not a literal translation of the words that are in the original, is no. the problem. Oh. It's, it's a one-woman man, and, um, and that's where we, I guess we get into the problem. Um, um, I think that uh, polygamy was, uh, was dismissed out right. of hand. Yeah, yes, right. yeah I, I would comment on this. When I taught it the first time, I was a little bit more hardline than I should have been. I thought it was not as inconclusive as it is. I think it is fairly inconclusive and you just have to, I, I would say that the, the commentators are split 50-50 as whether it's divorce or whether it's a man who is faithful to his wife. Um, almost all the commentaries agree it was not polygamy because neither in Rome or in Greece was polygamy practiced. The Jews didn't practice polygamy, so it can't be polygamy. Well, actually it does apply to polygamy. I've been well, in Africa, and it applied yeah, to polygamy yeah. in Africa. Well, later, <laughs> later in Constantine's time, they used it to apply it to polygamy because it was polygamy was was rampant. But yeah. at the time it was written, it wasn't particularly written. In other words, you can't out of hand say, "Well, it just applies to polygamy," because it wasn't no, a practice. No, that's the only. That's, right. It wasn't that's cultural. The, only, yeah, the, the second point. The second point is, is that. Divorce was very free and easy in Roman society, and people put their wives away at the drop of a hat and married As today. Else. They didn't have, almost like today, they didn't have multiple wives, but they would, at the same time, but they would have multiple wives because divorce was so easy. So there are words for divorce, as I think Matt um, pointed out last time. If he had wanted to say divorce, it would have been very easy for him to say divorce. Right. Um, I don't know, and even myself, after studying it some more, I don't know that you can, I would not be willing to take a hard line and say it absolutely positively means divorce, and that's the only interpretation. I wouldn't, I, I would not say that. I would say I probably think it's divorce, but I'm not going to die on that hill, and I'm not going to fight you to the death on that hill, because I'm not that, it's probably how I lean, but I don't, I can't prove it, and I don't, and I wouldn't try to attempt to prove it. Yeah. So okay. That's why I put I put all the everybody together. You got to make up your own mind and decide what it says. But I'm I'm I'm. It's not, neither choice is wrong. You're just making a choice at this time because there's we don't have enough evidence to prove one interpretation over another. And when a church comes to the place of recognizing elders, and this comes up, I I think 
individually a person uh, would have to stand on his his life and uh, he'd be looked at as a person and uh, be examined by the church and the church would have to have something to say about it and be able to accept them for that position, you know. And so, I think as Tracy pointed out also uh, that following right after blameless, uh, he, he would, it would uh, depend upon whether this divorce uh, brings a reproach on uh, the Church of Christ, on the name of Christ, uh, what was the situation of the divorce, and um, and that and that was pointed out during our discussion also is that divorce is a is a it's also a little bit of a of a difficult subject people come down on different sides of that and each divorce would have to be examined on its own right. and someone whose wife walked out on them when they were young who had made you know was a typical husband and bull in a china shop and he didn't know any better and they just gave up on the marriage and walked away and the husband couldn't do anything to save his marriage is a different situation than someone who walked away from his family because he was headstrong and, and selfish. And, and so that would be reproachful divorce. And that would be set, that would be handled as on, under the other qualifications, not under the qualification that is divorce. And it also, uh, I think divorce uh, is a symptom which uh, of which many of these qualifications, as you were saying, Clay would lead us to, to disqualify the man uh, on other on other uh, requirements and character traits that are in his I life. I think, hey, Ray. Yes. Can, am I coming through okay? I know sometimes a computer. Be yeah, David. Okay, good, good. I think that if the if the Lord felt strongly about this issue, it would have been made explicit to us in Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. I think we, he wouldn't want us bumbling around in the dark, you know, wondering if we're going to make the right decision or not. Yes. So I think we need to step back in this particular case and understand that the process, which is the Holy Spirit instruction here, and he's going to select the right man, right? Yes. Our role is not in the selection. It's in the recognition. Correct. Right? Right. That's right. That's a good yes. book. Okay. Yeah. Um, if we can leave divorce uh, for a moment and look at one woman man uh, and uh, the uh, concept of adultery, which uh, not just um, adultery in the sexual sense, but adultery in, this, in its purest meaning is adding to something. In a husband and wife relationship, it is adding someone else into that relationship, which then uh, we call adultery. Uh, I'm a pharmacist by trade. The Food and Drug Administration talks about adultery, and it's the contamination of any substance with, uh, uh, with something that is unlisted or particularly a harmful ingredient in there. Um, keep that in mind, something that's added in that, isn't, that, that is harmful. Uh, this also applies as well in the, if we think of Christ and Christ's bride, the church, and, uh, and the relationship between God and man, and the uh, Shema, I think it's called in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, is that there is one God, and uh, we're to have no other gods, as it, as it tells us in those commandments, but we are to love the Lord, our God, Yahweh, with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Not part of it. Not everything except for that portion that I have um, 
reserved for uh, another. Um, and there is a purity which is uh, required in a man in uh, his uh, family and uh, in, his, in his moral life, in his sexual life, uh, that corresponds to the purity of our devotion to one God. Uh, and it is very interesting that the emphasis grammatically in this phrase of a one woman man is on one. And the emphasis uh, in Deuteronomy chapters five and six is on one God. There is one God and there is no other God and you bring no other God in and you love that God with all that is in you. And I think that's getting to the crux of what this um, qualification is, that a man uh, that a man has a pure love uh, for one woman, and there, and that is a, and that's why adultery, I think, and I believe that is why adultery is a sin that is so devastating uh, in our lives because it is a because it destroys the picture of our fidelity to God uh, as, as our um, bridegroom. And um, anyway, wanted to get that out that there, there, so divorce would obviously be a symptom of that problem, but the, But the issue is is the purity and the and, and uh, the the oneness of that relationship, the one the one person that you have the relationship with. Anyway, I would just say if, if somebody has something to say, I would just say I think that was very well said and balanced with what. Dave just said, I think is a really good way to get get through this issue, I guess, is uh, navigating the waters. So. Well, that's what, what I was trying to do, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so we can get past it and go to the next uh, thing, which is also a family issue. And it's... Uh, hey, Ray, I'm going to interrupt you. Sorry, I got raised yeah. hand here. Tracy, oh, sorry. Say. go ahead. Tracy. Hey, one more thing. Uh, in the, uh, in the instance of an assembly wanting to, as David mentioned, recognize an elder um, and in consideration of this qualification here of being a one-woman man, if you indeed set aside or decide that the passage does not have in view polygamy, so if you set polygamy aside, this all becomes very easy, and I'm being facetious here, admittedly. This mm -hmm. becomes very easy because there isn't any, I, I can't think of an instance where there hasn't been uh, a person, where, where it hasn't been the uh, situation of a person being a one-woman man. Now, he may have divorced three wives prior, but today he's a one-woman man. So it becomes very easy for us. Again, I say that facetiously. It's, it's easy in the sense that he's got one woman. He can claim to be uh, qualified in that he's a one woman man. You see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying precisely. And we dealt with this when we were in Africa and we would try to prevent then men who were polygamists from having leadership in the church. And they would uh, just point the finger right back at us and say, hey, you people in America, if you practice serial polygamy. Yeah, single polygamy, yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not, a, it's it's not an easy question, easy. no. That's I think, but I think, I, think if we can, I think if we can look at this in terms of the uh, purity of relationship that needs to exist, 
and um, and the fact that it will not bring reproach uh, as well. Uh, children, children here. Um, my version says um, that uh, they are to be faithful children, not accused of dissipation or or. Uh, Uh, insubordination. The the uh, faithful there uh, is would perhaps uh, be one view. That that but another view is of course that they are believers. Should every elder have only believing children, no children that are not believers? I think an elder should have uh, children that respect them, that honor them. They may not all be believers. Um, that's in the Lord's hands. Um, but definitely respect and would honor their parents. I think that's very important. And I think that is uh, somewhat included in this as far as being unruly. I've, I was in a Circle K one time and I saw a lady standing there and her child wanted some toy. He was about six, seven years old. And uh, he didn't get what he wanted. So he actually falls on the ground and has a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. And he gets up and he kicks his mom in the shin. Now, to me, that's unruly. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that kid needed something that I think we all know what he should have got. But, um, but I, just, I just believe that the scripture is trying to tell us that uh, the children should respect and honor their parents. Uh, one of the problems with Eli in the Old Testament was the fact that his children, he waited too long. This is why the Bible tells us, train up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it. And that's why if training is started early in the home, yes. then you have less problems, generally speaking, to deal with as they get older, they'll be less rebellious. They'll, uh, respect and honor you, at least as your the parents. So yes. I, I just think that's what he's kind of referring to there. Mm -hmm. the, the, the point that was made earlier, it, it, I believe believing is not a great translation because only God knows who's a believer. It's a, having all your children be believers is not in control of the father. We're, that that's clearly taught in scripture that we're each answerable before the Lord. And we cannot, I know two children raised by godly parents and one went astray and one went straight as an arrow um, and raised in the same godly home. Parents are responsible for the behavior of their student of their children. They're not responsible for their salvation. They need to set a godly example. They need to be above reproach in that area. But if their child goes unsaved or turns apostate later after professing salvation, the father cannot will a person to be saved. Right. Thank you. Now, the next qualification that is listed is uh, that, that of a steward. It, said, it says that... Uh, of course, blameless is repeated once more. And then it says it is at blameless as the steward of God. Um, and so uh, I have a question regarding uh, stewardship. And uh, what do you know about uh, stewards or what, what does this bring to mind? And what, uh, why is it included as a qualification for an elder or an overseer? Well, when you say steward, I think of the parable of the um, master that left the money, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, the money with his servants, and then, uh, you know, one built, or one buried it, and, you know, so on and so on. And obviously, mm -hmm. the one that multiplied his money was a good steward of it. So I think when we're talking in terms of the church and elders, um, 
somebody that's a good steward is somebody that, you know, fosters the church in a way that it grows. Um, and, and in our own lives, I think we all are entrusted with, um, I'm going to use the word blessings that the Lord has given us and we're called to be good stewards of them as well. So I think it's kind of an overarching statement. Yes. So who is the owner here? Is the steward the owner? The steward is not the owner. The church doesn't belong to the elders. The he's steward is a, is a... He's the steward of God. He's God's representative. God appointed him. And yes. God appoints elders, I think. And the church just recognizes him, as we've already heard tonight. And so we, there need to be two things that, uh, which we won't cover in any more, more detail than just to say that as a steward... There's a proper understanding of, uh, of ownership. Who, who does the church belong to? It's not, it's not the elders' church. And another one is accountability. And of course, we'll get to accountability in another uh, lesson. So we won't go too deeply into that. But we need to keep, that's the great thing that, that steward always brings up. The steward is not the owner, but the steward has accountability to uh, manage, whether it's funds that are given to him, whether it's a household uh, uh, and others that have responsibilities in their functions and keeping those all running in, in good order. But that is what is in something that belongs to the master is entrusted to a steward. And the steward's uh, conduct, of course, reflects upon the master. Now there are, yes. Sorry, just on steward. I, it's one of the things I actually think a lot about this. Um, I think it's important to point out that you're entrusted to take care of it. But I really think going back to the parable I used, you're entrusted to multiply it. Like the master or the servant that buried it didn't do a good job. So right. if you just take the church, for instance, let's just say an elder, just kind of using anecdotally, took an, el an elder and he just covered it up and, and kept it and didn't let anybody in and didn't let it grow. That's not being a good steward. But yet it might be seen as, as such, you know? it's really the, I think being a good steward is, is multiplying uh, and, and, and not necessarily in numbers, but just in growth in the saints and encouraging of people. Stewardship, stewardship just is, is so multifaceted, but an elder is a steward. So one, one of the things an elder needs to do is be responsive. You cannot be a big procrastinator. A good steward is not a procrastinator. If there's an issue or a problem, it's addressed. He doesn't put it away. He doesn't put it off. He, he, he sees things and addresses them. One of the ways he makes things grow is that he recognizes problems that before they occur or as they occur, and he addresses it and takes care of it. So um, too often elders are, are stewards, but they forget that they're stewards of God's household Someone comes to them with a problem and they say, okay, I'll get back to you. And six months later, they've never gotten back to the person. That's not being a good steward of God's household. So it, it stewardship is a very large term that encompasses so much, as, as Matt said, growing. But it's, it's, it's how you grow that and what you do and your diligence in doing it and your, and your, and your ability to see ahead and to plan and the whole nine yards all comes into all comes into being so that you're a good steward. What is the uh, qualification of a good steward? Or the, the thing that a good steward is rewarded for? His faithfulness. Faithfulness, yeah. Yes, his faithfulness. First Corinthians. <laughs> yes. Okay, there, so there are a number of negatives that are that now uh, uh, seen before us, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, 
not greedy for money. Uh, these are on nearly every one of them we have gone over in some detail in the last couple of weeks. I don't think that there's anything there that, in, in fact, some of these are the identical words that were in First uh, Timothy chapter three. And um, I think, I think self-will is a little bit different. I mean, I, I think we touched on aspects of that, but I think it, it's different than what, than what it said in Timothy. And self-willed here uh, is um, a word that sort of means like an auto-hedonist or something. It's somebody who uh, is selfish and uh, is concerned with the with what they want entirely, um, and um, I think that this is also the person that is always right, uh, always uh, uh, the person who's always right. Of course, ends up being defensive. They can't take any criticism, and they can't have anything done other than the way that they think it should be done. One, one, one way to recognize a self-willed person is they're usually arrogant. They believe their way is the right way. If, if, if they're rebellious and unwilling to submit to authority, that means they're self-willed. So you never want someone in authority who doesn't, who wasn't willing to submit to authority because as we're going to look at in the future, being an elder means mutual submission. You have to be willing to submit too. And if you're a person who can't submit, and that's what I consider self-willed, is a, a refusal to submit. You're going to do it your way. Your way's best. You, you, you didn't read any of those verses that said, let man, a man not think more highly of himself. Let a man consider others better than himself. You've ignored all those verses, and you're right every time. And you can come up with a reason why you're right. And those type of people make terrible elders. Okay, I'm going to um, move on past those five negatives to, uh, to some positives. And, uh, and uh, with, with that, the first uh, positive that we get, get to then is hospitable and this is the same same word that we saw in uh, first timothy chapter three and i have a question here what does hospit hospitable mean today and did it mean the same thing in paul's day I think we should. Interesting in the book of First uh, Peter chapter four that uh, hospitality is used in verse nine. It says, "Using hospitality one to another without grudging, and every man hath received the gift. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards. How about that? Yeah, good stewards of the manifold grace of God." Um, my father, having been in the military many years ago, appreciated the fact that there were those who took him into their home when uh, he was still serving. He was single at the time. But my dad made it a point when the service people came to Omaha that that was one of the first things he did. He invited the service men and their wives, if they were married or whatever, into our home. But he to entertain strangers as well. Uh, well how important that is. Um, my mom sent us out on a cold winter night when we had 15 inches of snow into the streets to invite people into our home whom we didn't know and uh, to give them a place to stay for the night, a warm uh, environment, uh, good food and everything, and being able to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus in the process. Yes. And I ended up meeting one of those young women many years later when I had a accident and I had to go to a doctor's office and there she was and she remembered being in our home. So wow. those little things like that are, are very memorable and very special to me. 
yes. and entertaining the Lord's people, no matter uh, who they are and where they come from, and just uh, being very gracious. Yes, and I think Steve, it's it, you. You said it, and it's important that that the word literally means uh, lover of strangers. Oh yeah, and and uh, the and in yeah. and we need to uh, uh, be accepting of people for one thing, but the, the point I wanted to get at that hospitality almost means uh, something different than it, than it did in Paul's day today. When we think of hospitality, we think of having people in and we have a nice meal and we, um, we there may be a number of other things that are involved in hospitality, but in those days, the hospitality meant that you took in people who were traveling or people who uh, were persecuted and fleeing persecution. And that's what Paul had in mind here. And they, it was and in, in the New Testament, several people are commended for doing that very thing. And, uh, and they are people that do not know, but they have a, a testimony um, of being believers. And so they are accepted by people. And we need, and we need to have that kind of a heart, I think, as um, uh, the elder is not just someone who uh, invites somebody in his congregation over every Sunday afternoon, but he needs to have somebody who is really a lover of strangers, and he goes out of his way to um, to do what needs to be done for strangers. Yeah, I think, I think what, uh, sorry, the fellow in the white t-shirt, I can't. Steve. Steve, Steve read to us. <clears throat> um, it, it's really, I think hospitality doesn't matter when, when that word, what it means then or what it means now. I think the point is using what we have for the benefit of God's people, no matter if they're in our group, no matter if they're not in our group, no matter what they need, whether they need a meal, a place to stay, their car fixed, their house fixed, their water heater changed, whatever it is, whatever the need is, whatever the time period is, the truth can apply all across the board. And that is God loves when his people take care of his people and an elder should be a leader in that. Okay, good. We have, um, we, we've talked about a number of these other positive uh, characteristics here, and uh, the lover of good um, is, um, is a general characteristic that um, uh, is even uh, taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that a, that a man uh, loves those things that are that are uh, he rejoices when good is done doesn't rejoice in evil but this is this is the man who loves good and he loves doing good as well uh, sound mind sensible he's just the right conduct holy living uh, he is set apart from the world to god is pure and has self-control and uh, inner strength, inner discipline. Um, I think those are all qual qualifications that we have looked at um, the, over the last couple of weeks. Um, now, I wanted to also ask another question. The qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 list uh, apt to teach or able to teach, and how does Titus here uh, address this issue? He's talking about an exhortation. He's talking about confuting opposers, holding fast the faithful word, being of sound doctrine. And it's... Um, I, I think that those all work together as a group, don't they? 
Yes. It's expanded more here than it is in First Timothy chapter 3. So it's, it's a fuller description of, of what is uh, being apt to teach because it involves more than, uh, obviously we've said before, it involves more than someone who is able to take the pulpit and to uh, preach a sermon and hold people's attention for uh, 40 minutes. But uh, this uh, can and, uh, and does involve uh, times when you're dealing one-on-one -on -one with people. The, the important thing here is that this man who is apt a teacher who is teaching knows the word. He, he knows the apostles' doctrine and the teaching of the doctrine. There's a firm grip on it. He has spent time in the word and uh, he can apply it uh, successfully or properly uh, when, uh, when there's a situation that he needs. He, he's big on the authority of scripture. Uh, that, that, the, that, the, uh, that the scriptures are the final answer to our questions and uh, as well that the scriptures are sufficient. They cover area, every area and uh, help us in making decisions, pra practical things in our lives. He has studied and saturated himself with the word and then he is able to encourage godly living based on that truth. And he's also able to refute error uh, whenever uh, someone contradicts and can use God's word to correct uh, someone who is, um, uh, who is contradicting or out of line. And so this uh, is an in intelligent obedience to the word of God, not a, a rote um, following uh, a set of rules, but somebody who knows why they believe what they believe and knows why they practice what they practice and able to share it with others. Uh, Ray? Yes. This, uh, this same uh, phrase, apt to teach, is also used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he says in verse 24, he says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose him, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. I just think that is so, uh, such an eloquent description of really the way an elder would approach somebody, maybe who is misguided or who is, doesn't have a better understanding of the scriptures. Uh, but they come to them in meekness. They don't come and jam it down their throats. They come in a spirit of being able to teach them and uh, so that it'll be received better. And then... It says here that uh, perhaps uh, they will um, acknowledge the truth of God's word and therefore uh, be delivered from uh, Satan's snare. Yes. So it's just an eloquent way, I think, of, of describing the way an elder should approach. Yes. And, and we can be gentle because it, it, we're, not, we're not winning an argument. What yeah. we're doing is showing how the word of God is true. <laughs> right. And when somebody true. recognizes that, the, the word of God wins. Right. Many elders have read the sentence, they must be silenced. They just forgot to read the sentences that go before that. <laughs> so they don't silence people by the teaching of what's right. They silence people by silencing them, by telling them by force of will or, or other manners that they can't speak. And so it's one thing to silence because you teach the right thing and they have no rebuttal to that and they can't argue with it. It's something else when you say, we don't want you speaking because you say things we don't agree with. Right. And elders who say that, usually they say that because they can't rebut what the person's saying or they're not apt to teach 
or they're not able to use the word of God to silence them. They have to silence them through other means. Right. Thank you, Clay. And uh, the last question that I had on my discussion questions was, do you think that uh, the practice and uh, character qualities of an unsaved man should disqualify him from eldership uh, after he's been born again and grown? And we said we'd come back to this. What sort of things in our past are going to disqualify us. Should they? Well, I, th I think there's a couple schools of thought. Yes. Um, and one of them is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, but again, I think he goes to Dave Wright's point that the Holy Spirit is not going to raise somebody up to be an elder that uh, has, you know, has characteristics that um, can't be good for the flock, that can't be good for the church. Um, so again, I, th I think you're, you're kind of back to each individual circumstance, you know, if, uh, I'll just pick one. If a brother comes forward and says, I, I feel God is raising me up to be an elder, and he's a, he's, uh, a child molester and a wife abuser, but he did it all while he was unsaved, um, you're probably going to look at that situation. You're going to go, well, you know, God may, you may feel that way, but, you know, we disagree or we don't see that in you, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, I think there's, there's various things that may, you may see a tenor in somebody's life uh, that, that uh, you wouldn't want in a position of leadership. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested to hear what my brother had to say. I think one of the verses that comes to my mind um, when I when I see something like this is Paul. What Paul writes in in First Corinthians six, he says, um, mm -hmm. "Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God." And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. In the case of a child molester or um, a rapist or something like that, they'd be labeled as a sex offender. They would not be blameless. They would not clear some of the other hurdles that are important to clear. And some of these, well, might cause that same hurdle not to be cleared. But as far as I'm aware past sin should not in and of itself, depending on the sin then and whether they're of good report within and without, but the sin itself should not disqualify someone. It's the report that the that people see him and look at him and understand who he is. And so um, I don't think it's an automatic disqualification, let's put it that way. But the New Testament says uh we're not to recognize a novice and uh, not somebody new to the word and uh, but somebody who is matured so you you take some of these sins as clay was saying uh, they don't automatically i guess nullify him but the the man is going to have to have given a lot of quality time demonstrating the change in his life change that he's worthy that he is that he is a godly man, that he has put these things behind him. And, uh, you know, and if he is a really a godly man, he, he may want to be an elder and he may not be upset if he's not. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's, the, it's not a novice, but a mature, godly man. And, uh, 
you know, you can overcome a, a past life, but it's, it's, you're going to have to put a lot of good quality time in to do that. You know, when someone's 17 years old and they stole the car and now they're 55 years old and they've had a 40 year clean record. Um, I know some places would say, no, no, he's disqualified because he doesn't have a, he has a, he has something in his background. So I'm just saying that that doesn't automatically disqualify someone unless he's currently still not above reproach. But as Jeff said, obviously we talked a long time about this not being a novice. So it's not someone who just walked in the door, but if they've shown themselves to be faithful and they meet the, the rest of the qualifications and they're above reproach in the community that they live in, then I would not automatically say something in their background is an automatic disqualification. And unfortunately, I think some of us are aware that there's many people who say if you've done anything wrong, even sometimes a perceived wrong, you're automatically disqualified. That's what, that, that's what Matt's father was saying earlier. He, he grew up in a church that did say these things, that you, you're disqualified, you can't. And I, and I think that I would say to, to Matt's dad and everybody else, that, that's not biblical, that's not New Testament Christianity, and um, it doesn't automatically rule somebody out. And um, I don't think anybody at Palms thinks that way. Right, and, and I think I, some, some words were used that were very good words, and that's that uh, uh, we cannot have automatic <laughs> disqualifications. Yeah. We've got to look at the, the person. Uh, we've got to see what the Lord has done in their life. We've got to see how, what they are, uh, if they are doing the work. Obviously, a man cannot be recognized as an elder if he's not doing the work of an elder. One, and, uh, one of the problems is that type of atmosphere or that type of attitude causes hypocrisy. Because then we hide things and we're not willing to be honest and open with our failures and with our shortcomings because we're afraid that if we're honest or open, see people will judge us to be less than worthy. And so you, you end up to have a pharisaical type system where everybody's really hiding what they do wrong or hiding what their failures are because they don't want anybody to know them because they're trying to achieve a super spirituality or at least appear super spiritual in everyone's eyes. And if someone doesn't think you're super spiritual, then somehow, and, and then eldership has become a prestige position of people who are super spiritual. And so those who are best at hiding their faults and at hiding their background end up being elders because you've created the system where any fault just automatically dismisses you. Okay, I think we need to wrap it up. And I'd like to read a little bit here from 1 Timothy chapter one, mm -hmm. when Paul is saying, I think uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor, a violently arrogant man, but I obtained mercy. And he goes on down uh, a few verses later to say that uh, he, ob he obtained that mercy the reason for that I obtained that mercy was that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's a pattern. Paul himself knew that he was a pattern of a life uh, of mistakes that seem unforgivable and yet the Lord had mercy on him and the Lord made him into his servant and gave him a ministry and I think that uh, this can be true can be true for elders we we don't assume it's true in every in every instance but uh, but we're looking we're looking uh, at the individual and at uh, uh, his qualifications and of course whether he's doing the work and Ray if I can just jump in real quick going back again to the word blameless I mean you know not sinless and if the 
you look at the man's life, nobody can point the finger at him and say, well, look what's going on in your life right now. Because he, he, he saw the weaknesses and he dealt with them and he put them out of his life and he matured. And it's a, been a process of growing and maturing as a Christian for, for time, for quite a long time. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think the idea is it's not that we never make mistakes or we're, we're sinless, but it's how we recover, learn, how we, how we deal with them, recover from, and learn from those mistakes and grow in the grace of God. Okay, let's, uh, let's end uh, with a word of prayer and then we'll sort of open it up for people that want to further discuss or if people want to get off and uh, do something else they have uh, planned. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you that uh, we can look to your word as being authoritative for us, that your word is, is going to answer every question for us. And we don't sometimes understand perfectly what you're saying to us, but we do trust that, that you know what you're talking about. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust in you. We realize that the church is your church. You've said that you're going to build your church there's nothing that can prevail against your church, and we know that uh, you will bring about what you desire to have accomplished in your church. And we, we thank you that we can rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.